Father, Son, Holy Spirit for your, your love, your mercy, your grace, for who, who you are to us. Lord, we, we declare right now together that there is only one name that is worthy of worship. Uh, there is one name that is high and lifted up. There is one name that is exalted. Lord, I thank you. There's no other throne that is above yours. And in fact, Lord, you, by the power of your name, conquered the grave. Father, thank you that because you, through the person of Jesus Christ, conquered the grave, that we have life in this place today. That because you live, we can face tomorrow. Lord, there's no doubt there's people in this room that are facing so many different challenges and difficulties. Lord, you know them all. And we pray that one thing resonates deeply in our hearts right now is that there is one name over every challenge, every difficulty, every trial, and that you're accomplishing your good work and your good will in our lives through every circumstance. Father, I pray that you would minister to us today. I pray right now for every single person in this room. Would you minister by your Holy Spirit through the proclamation of your word? Would you teach us? Would you change us? Would you challenge us? Would you make us more like Jesus Christ? And I pray what you would find for yourself in this room is many, many people who will gladly say, Lord, here I am. I worship you. I surrender to you. I submit to you. So lead us now as we go into your word. For the glory of your name we pray. In Jesus' name, if you agree, say amen. 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 You can have a seat. I am so thankful to be here. Really, really thrilled, actually, to be here. I bring greetings from the church in Toronto West and really from our staff and our elders. I want you to know that we are cheering for you. We are behind you. We are so thrilled with what God has been doing in this place, what God has entrusted to you. We are so full of joy over what God has done and continues to do. As Pastor Chris said, my very first time preaching within a harvest context was January 2012 when you guys were at the school in Brampton. And it was Harvest Brampton, one service at that time. About 500 people, I think, and I just, I'm just so thankful to be back and, and to have been able to walk through this with you and your, your pastor is a dear friend of mine, Pastor Ted, and your leaders and your staff, and just, just can't emphasize enough how much we are behind you, praying for you. We love you. So, so glad and so thankful. Thank you for having me here. I trust that God has a word uh, for us today. So, I'm just going to begin uh, right now with a, with a question. And uh, sometimes I like to do that because it gets the wheels turning in our minds. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, I have a question for you to ask yourself. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, I want you to ask yourself this question. Here it is. What am I here for? What am I here for? Or you can specifically ask this. What is my purpose or function as a Christian on this earth? Such an important question because the answer to that question is really going to drive and dictate how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we view our money. Is it my money anyways? Well, what am I here for? Well, what's my function as a Christian here in this world? 
Uh, today we're jumping into some of Jesus' clearest teaching on the function of the believer in the world. And so I want you to turn with me right away in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. The ushers are going to be coming down the aisles. If you don't have a Bible, you can put up your hand. And one of the ushers would love to put a copy of God's Word in your hands. If you don't own one, that Bible will be our gift to you. Take it home and read it and have your life transformed by the Word of God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. While you're turning there, I want to give you a bit of context so we don't just parachute in not knowing where we are. But our text today is part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was the first full comprehensive sermon that Jesus ever preached. I want you to know it's the most powerful sermon ever preached by the most powerful, most prolific preacher who had ever stepped foot on the face of the earth. Who's that preacher? It's Jesus Christ. And in the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to understand, Jesus has been laying out the qualities and characteristics of all true disciples of Jesus Christ. He says, you want to follow me? Let me tell you what it means to follow me. Let me tell you some of the marks of true followers of Jesus Christ. And having just taught the qualities and priorities of the deeper life in Christ, the blessed life in Christ... By the way, did you know that life in Christ is a deeper life than what this world has to offer you? It's a deeper life. It's a a blessed life. Having just laid out these qualities and priorities in the Beatitudes, Jesus now begins to elaborate on how these qualities and characteristics of this blessed life, of this deeper life, how are they supposed to be lived out? Specifically, what is it supposed to look like in the life of the believer, and I want you to make no mistake about this. Jesus is very clear that by definition, all true disciples of Jesus Christ must have a lasting impact on the world around them. That the disciples of Jesus Christ are not in their own little bubble doing their own little thing, not in your own little library filled with theology books doing your own thing, but by necessity, the deeper life is a life that reaches beyond your bubble. The deeper life, the blessed life, is a life that reaches beyond the four walls of your home. The deeper life that Jesus is laying out in the Sermon on the Mount, it goes farther. It reaches beyond the four walls even of this church. Jesus shows us that the deeper life by necessity is a life that reaches farther to touch people around us with some kind of influence affecting some kind of impact. And so Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16, let's read it together. Starting from verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp. And put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What am I here for? What are you here for? Jesus answers that. 
I want to start with this thought. Going deeper means reaching farther. And reaching farther means this. Write this down. Uh, Embracing the call to influence. Embracing, putting your arms around this call to influence. On the screen for you, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He wrote, the Christian is not someone who lives in isolation. He is in the world, though he is not of it, and he bears a relationship to that world. The Christian is told that he must be otherworldly in his mind and outlook, but that never means that he retires out of the world. In these verses, we are told very clearly the relationship of the Christian to the world in general. So what is that relationship? Notice it in verse 13 and 14 again. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And right away, I want to show you that there's a connection between what Jesus has just said in verses 10 to 11 and what he's saying to us right now in verses 13 and 14. Notice on the screen, verses 10 to 11, Jesus caps off the Beatitudes with this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. In verse 11, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so having just laid out the hard reality and yet the true blessing of persecution in the Christian life, he leans in now with an emphatic exhortation as it pertains to the calling of the Christian in the Christian life. He's anticipating that as he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, that some are like, what, what? I don't, I don't know about that, Jesus. I, I, some are starting to walk away. He, he says, hold on, hold on, lean in a little bit. You can't walk away. There's a call on your life. You, you can't, and he leans in with this emphatic exhortation. Yes, the blessed life is a life of persecution. The blessed life is not an easy life. But, but listen, you are the salt of the earth. He says, you're the light of the world. And it's important for us to know that one of salt's main functions throughout the centuries has been to preserve food. It's a preservative. It's added to food to protect, to prevent, or slow down decay or spoilage. When Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, he's announcing that all true disciples don't run away. <laughs> don't run away. All true disciples have to, have to be engaged in this world in such a way that impacts the world, that affects change. It, it doesn't take you very long to look around or to check your social media feed and, and to see the, the world is spoiling, isn't it? The world is rotting away. The world is getting worse. And Jesus says, you're here to be salt. You're here to be light. You're here to impact. You're here to prevent the spoilage that's taking place that's caused by sin. And so when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, he's announcing that there's a call on our lives. But he says something else. Not only are his disciples likened to salt, but notice now verse 14, Jesus says, You're the light of the world. With this statement comes the reality of the new era, the new covenant that Jesus Christ came to usher in. And it's actually fulfillment of prophecy. You'll remember the prophet Isaiah said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light 
has shone. So not only has light come to a dark world through the person of Jesus Christ, but here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes it a step further. He looks at his disciples and he says, I've come to bring light into the world and you are the extension of my light in the world. So not only does Jesus say in the Gospels that he is the light of the world, but Jesus makes very clear, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. The world is dark. How else is it going to be illuminated? The word you in the original Greek, it's, it's emphatic. In other words, Jesus is saying, if, if you're not salt, who's going to be salt? If you're not light, where's the light going to come from? He gives this emphatic exhortation. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This, loved ones, is a big deal as we consider God's redemptive plan of salvation that is happening here in this city and in the cities of our province and the provinces of our nation and the nations of the world. But it's also a big deal for us to consider as we think about just how dark the world really is. The world is a very dark place. I was reading an article published by the Washington Post. It was entitled, uh, Think Christianity is Dying? No, it's actually shifting dramatically. Listen to some interesting statistics that um, I read in this article. It said, the center of Christianity has shifted from the west to the global south. One century ago, 80% of the world's Christians lived in North America and Europe. Today, only 40% of the world's Christians live in North America and Europe. In 1980, more Christians were found in the global south, that's Africa, Asia, and Latin America, than in the north for the first time in 1,000 years. Today, the Christian community in Latin America and Africa alone account for one billion people, and one out of four Christians in the world today is an African. Asia is also experiencing growth as the world's Christianity center has moved not only south, but also east. In the last century, Christianity grew at twice the rate of population in Asia. Asia's Christian population of 350 million is projected to grow to 460 million by the year 2025. The article goes on. The global religious wild card is China. Today, demographers estimate that more Christian believers are found worshiping in China on any given Sunday than in the United States. And so statistics like these, trends like these, show us a few things. One obvious reality is that while The influence of the Christian church is growing and blossoming all over the world in some of the most hostile and persecuted nations of the world. Shows us that the influence of the Christian church where we live, it seems to be decreasing. 
Statistics like this show us that the face of Christianity is no longer a, a Western face. A more accurate reflection of the face of Christianity in the world is, is an African face. It's, a, it's an Asian face. It's a Latin American face. Now, at least three things happen in my heart when I read about trends like this. Uh, number one, I rejoice that the gospel is advancing and multiplying in some of the most dangerous and hostile nations of the world. Praise the Lord for that. That's awesome news. But secondly, my heart feels burdened by the ever-increasing secularization of our own nation. The ever-increasing secularization of the cities of our own province. That The reality is that there is a wholesale decline in churches where we live that really have a high view of the scriptures, that have a high view of the word of God, that have a high view of the glory of God, that actually want to embrace the mission of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations. That's, that's burdening. But there's a third thing that happens in my heart when I read trends like this. Thirdly, my heart is filled with with urgency to wholeheartedly embrace the call to influence. It's a call that Jesus places on the life of every true follower of his. It's a, it's a call to influence. So globally, we as a church in the Western world, we have a, an amazing opportunity for strategic partnerships where the gospel is blossoming all around the world. We have an opportunity with all the resources we have to partner strategically for training, for equipping, so that the gospel continues to be strengthened in other parts of the world. We've seen that just being in Haiti, I think it was last month, seeing that the gospel is growing, but they need so much help with training. We can, we can help. We can help. But locally, loved ones, locally, locally we need to wake up. Locally, we as the Western church need to wake up out of our Western world slumber. We've fallen asleep. We've gotten complacent. We like our comfort. We like our comfy seats. We have the com most comfortable seats in our church. We meet in the theater. Man, they are soft. I'm telling you. Well, we've gotten so cozy that we've been lulled to sleep. We need to wake up. Because Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Now, I have a question by way of self-examination for each of us. Take this question to apply it to your own heart. Is the fact that you live where you are making any difference at all where you live. I mean, is the fact that you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, you are a follower of Christ, is the fact that you live on your street making any impact at all on that street? Is the fact that you are a believer of Jesus Christ filled with the Holy Spirit when you walk into your grocery store every week is the fact that you are there making any impact at all in that grocery store with those employees, with the rest of the people that you're rubbing shoulders with there. Is the fact that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, saved by his grace as I'm pumping gas. Is the fact that I'm pumping gas next to a guy who doesn't know anything about Jesus. Is the fact that I am there making any difference at all. 
Jesus says we must make a difference. We must have an impact. Jesus says we're salt and light, influencers, ambassadors of a great kingdom. And so Jesus tells us that going deeper in the Christian life necessitates reaching farther. And reaching farther means that we put our arms around the call of Jesus Christ on our lives to influence. To influence people around us, to influence people in our homes, to influence people we're at work with, to influence people we're rubbing shoulders with every single day. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. That is a call to influence if we are not being influencers for the cause of the kingdom. No one will be. And so this is important stuff to Jesus Christ. So going deeper means reaching farther. Reaching farther means embracing the call to influence. Secondly, I want you to note this. Reaching farther means this now. um, Avoiding the dangers of ineffectiveness. So not only embracing the call to influence, but it means avoiding the dangers of of ineffectiveness. Notice verse 13 to 15, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Watch this. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So, Jesus is giving us some very practical things here. He's giving us some practical things to hold on to, specifically as it pertains to how not to be ineffective as salt and light. How not to be rendered ineffective. This should be important to us. All of us should be leaning in right now. Am I ineffective? Or am I truly being salt and light? Am I being effective for the cause of Christ as salt and light in the world. So I want you to write this down. I'm rendered completely ineffective in the world when, write this down, when I'm willfully submitting to sin. Jesus shows us that. It's important to know that the only instance in which salt can lose its taste is when it's been contaminated. When a batch of contaminated salt was found in a first century home, They were careful not to let that salt hit their garden or their crops because it would contaminate and ruin their crops. What they would do instead, if they found a batch of contaminated salt, they would take it and they would walk it out to the path and they would dump it on the path and it would be walked upon and trampled under people's feet. Why? Why? Because that salt was useless. Because that salt no longer functioned the way it was supposed to salt function. Jesus says, when the salt loses its taste, it's good for nothing. Throw it onto the path and let it be trampled underfoot. He's illustrating something for us that's profound. He's illustrating the reality of what it looks like when believers in Jesus Christ have rendered themselves ineffective or useless in the world. You say, how, how does that happen? How are believers rendered ineffective? How exactly, Jason? What are you trying to say? How are churches rendered ineffective? Well, Jesus tells us it is through contamination. It is compromise. It's when believers start to play with sin. 
It's when the Spirit of God says, don't go there. And we say, no, I'm, I'm just going to suppress that. I'm going to go there. It's when, the, it's when you're, you're doing something with your hands and the Spirit of God says, don't, don't do that. It's not good for you. You're compromising. And you suppress the Spirit and you can continue to do it. It's like when you turn on your computer and you start watching something and the Spirit of God in you says, that's wrong. Don't look at that. You're being contaminated. You're compromising. And you squish that sense and you, you continue to watch what you're watching. It's, it's compromise. Jesus says one sure way disciples render themselves ineffective as it pertains to being salt and light influencers in the world is when believers in Jesus Christ allow themselves to be contaminated by sin. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you understand the gospel. You understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross. His blood was shed. He paid the penalty for your sin. Every sin stain washed away. Every sin stain washed away. Never to be remembered anymore. But you'll also understand as a believer in Jesus Christ, the temptation and the tendency to take the grace of God for granted. The Apostle Paul tells us, may it never be so. And maybe you're here today. And you know of an area of your life where you are compromising. Maybe you're here today. You know of an area of your life where you are playing with sin. You're saying, you're saying to yourself, well, surely it's not so bad if I just continue to do this. Nobody really knows. God sees. And you're allowing your heart to be contaminated by sin through your compromise and your lack of repentance. And Jesus says when you do that. You're not functioning the way you're supposed to function and you're rendered ineffective and useless as it pertains to the cause of Jesus Christ in this world. If that's you right now, Jesus calls you lovingly to repentance. He reminds you again of his grace. He reminds you again of his mercy. Grace is what we receive, that, we, that, that which we receive that we don't, don't deserve. Mercy is that which he holds back from us, that which we do, do deserve. He gives us his grace. He gives us his mercy. He calls you again and says, I will wash away every stain. But if you're compromising today, today today to put it away. I'm rendered completely ineffective in the world when I'm willfully submitting to sin. Secondly, I'm rendered ineffective in the world when, write this down, when I'm constantly hiding the light. When I'm constantly hiding the light. Notice verse 14 to 15. The second part of 14 says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, you'll see that Jesus has no problem stating the obvious. Because sometimes the most profound realities are simple truths that simply need to be obeyed. Here's the deal. Uh, you cannot hide a city on a hill. Okay? We're here. There's a hill up there. There's a city there. You can see the city because it's on a hill. It cannot be hidden. Jesus is stating the, op uh, the obvious. Okay? Nobody goes to Home sense and buys a beautiful glass lamp and brings it to their house and plugs it in and lights up the room and then goes to the garage and gets a basket and comes in to cover it so that it darkens again. Nobody does that. Jesus is stating the obvious. In other words, 
Jesus is saying to hide the light of Jesus Christ is to live in a way that is completely contradictory to your design and your purpose as a believer and as a Christian in this world. I love reading biographies. I was reading one recently. Let me share it with you. On the screen is a picture of Adoniram and Ann Judson. They were missionaries to India and Burma in, eight, in the 1800s. They sacrificed their entire lives in order to make the light of Jesus Christ known and visible to all no matter the cost. I, I want you to hear a little bit about their journey. I want you to hear how their journey began. The biography said, almost immediately, Adoniram was smitten by Anne's vivacity, charm, and beauty. And a month later, he formally asked her in a letter if he, she would consent to have him court her. She replied that he must secure her father's permission. So, it was July of 1810 that Adoniram sent her father one of the most extraordinary letters from a prospective son-in-law. Listen to what he wrote in this letter. He wrote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. To see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land. Her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean. To the fatal influence of the southern climate of India. To every kind of want and distress. To degradation, insult, persecution and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathens saved through her means from eternal woe? And despair. Through a season of struggle and contemplation, her father finally consented and Anne agreed to marry Adoniram. They left for India and their journey was marked by just that persecution and prison and illness and trauma and finally death. Adoniram was in prison, the biography goes on, under horrific circumstances. Anne literally saved his life by pleading with government officials to let him live. By daily taking food to him in the prison and by relentlessly pressuring the government authorities throughout the course of the war to free him. No sooner though than Adoniram was released in 1826, Anne herself fell sick. Exhausted by this time of stress, persecution and the burden of managing things without her husband's help. She died on October 24th, 1826. Her last words being uttered in Burmese, the tongue of the people she had grown to love. Now, as I read through this biography, I started to ask myself the following question. How can we account for such a life of loss? How can we account for such a life of of sacrifice. How can we account for such lives of saltiness and light? How do we account for such a life? And, and one clear answer that kept coming to my mind was this. That the only way anyone could live a life of such effectiveness and faithfulness and sacrifice 
is through a, an awareness, it's through an awakening to the reality that we as Christians have something that this world so desperately needs. The only way we can live lives of such saltiness and effectiveness and light in this world is if we just get over ourselves and wake up out of the Disneyland of Western world Christianity and begin to realize that people at work, people at school, people in my family, they, see, I was once dead and now I'm alive. They're still dead. I was once blind, and now I see they're still blind. I was once lost, don't know where I'm going. They're still wandering around. I've been found by Jesus. They need so much to be found. When your eyes are opened in this way, the settled conviction of your heart becomes... A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's, it's true. A lamp is not put on and then covered. It's, it's true. You begin to think when you look at the darkness all around you. I can't hide the light. Because it's literally a matter of life and death. For people that I know, people that I love. And so we need to avoid the dangers of ineffectiveness so that we could be about the things that matter the most in life. Loved ones, could it be that we are more often than not all about things that don't matter at all? But the things that really matter and will matter for all eternity. We've rendered ourselves ineffective for that work because we're compromising with sin or for whatever reason we have decided that we're going to hide the light. Now, I want you to understand that this is not a moment of guilt because I love to say, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen? No condemnation, but but this is a moment to be awakened. It's a moment to have our eyes opened again. It's a moment to have our hearts stirred within us. I don't want to live for what doesn't matter. I don't want to be about the things that don't matter. I don't want to stand before God one day and realize that I spent so much time for stuff that doesn't matter. What matters, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We have a job to do, and we're on a mission. So by necessity, Jesus says, going deeper in your Christian life means reaching farther. Reaching farther means getting your arms around this call to influence. It means avoiding the dangers of ineffectiveness. One more thing. Going deeper means reaching farther. Reaching farther means this now. Write this down. Getting a vision for the ultimate purpose. Getting a vision for the ultimate purpose. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But what's the ultimate purpose here? What is the end game? Well, the end game, the end game of everything 
is the glory of God. The single thread being woven through the scriptures is God is worthy and worthy to be glorified. And everything ultimately comes down to his glory. And Jesus agrees with that. Jesus essentially says the end game is the glory of God. That people will look at your life. They'll see a radically different life. They'll see a radically different way of living. They'll see radically different honesty and integrity. They'll see that you do things differently. They see that you're about something that is bigger than yourself. Jesus says people will see that. And then they will cast down their idols. And they will worship the true and living God. Did you see that in the text? Let your light shine in the same way so that they may see your good works. And do what? What do they do? Say that you're awesome? No, they don't say you're awesome. They give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How powerful, how profound it is for us to realize that just like a city on a hill cannot be hidden and just like no one lights a lamp to put it under a basket, that we can let our light shine and when that happens, people will see it, Jesus says, and Jesus says when people see it, listen, they will be changed by it. So you're here today and, and, and you're nervous sometimes. You, you hide your, your Christianity. People are like, what are you doing this weekend? You're just kind of like, you know, I'm going out. You're just kind of hiding that. But, but how about this? Jesus says, if you open your mouth, if you let your light shine, if you tell them about your church, if you tell them about your Christ, Jesus says, they're going to see your good works. They're going to make sense of things. And they're going to come to know your Father in heaven and give him glory. Profound power that is seen in the life of people who will be about the things that matter the most and who will just push away the things that are distracting us that matter not. Consider that for a moment. That God would so use your life that the creator of all things would use your life. You say, he can't use me. I'm telling you. This is what Jesus is saying. You let your life shine. You let your light shine. He will use you. You say, but not me, like maybe you, you're a preacher. No, 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 Jesus is saying, let your light shine wherever you are. And the power that is found in a life that is radically changed, a life of light and salt, to bring others into a place of worship of the only true God who is worthy. I read the following and I found it so powerful. It's said of Robert Murray McShane, a a godly Scottish minister of the last century, that his, listen, his face carried such a hallowed expression that people were known to fall on their knees and accept Christ as Savior when they looked at him. Others were so attracted by the self-giving beauty and holiness of his life that they found his master irresistible loved ones wouldn't it be so awesome if we could come to the Lord in prayer every day with the Bible open before us to say Lord fill me today make me about the things that matter the most let even my face reflect that there's something different about me 
that people would even look at your life and be so amazed by it. There's got to be something in that person. Jesus says he wants to do that in you. Jesus will do that in you. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. In this moment, this could be a moment of deep reflection where you can come before God right now and just say, Lord, forgive me because I've been about things that really don't matter at all, so distracted. Maybe there's people in the room who want to say, Lord, I, that's me. I've rendered myself ineffective. I know that for sure. God, forgive me. I, I've been so distracted and on a detour by the challenges of my life and the hardships of my life. And, and Lord, how, I know you even care about those things. Help me to seek first the kingdom. And all these other things will be added to me. Maybe this is your moment to say, it's a matter of surrender. Lord, here I am. I want to embrace this calling on my life. Here I am, Lord. I want to avoid at all costs the dangers of ineffectiveness. Maybe it's a moment for you to repent and say, forgive me for my compromise so that I could be useful to you again. And right now, maybe with your hands raised like this, just to say, Lord, glorify yourself through me and in me. God, I pray you would do that. Do that in every single person in this church. I pray that there would be salt and light moving from this church into neighborhoods and homes and schools and workplaces. And that we would be so aware that it is Christ in me that it's doing it all. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, church, stand to your feet and worship the Lord.